Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast called C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may recognize me as the host of Franklin Covey's other weekly podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, where now that is the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. And after hundreds of interviews with major stars and celebrities and business titans and best-selling authors, what we learned each week is that it wasn't always just the big Hollywood celebrity or the famous Fortune 50 CEO who got the best and most numbers of downloads and reviews and ratings. It was the entrepreneur, the business leader who had a very relatable career like yours and mine, in some ways even aspirational, that got the most interest and the most feedback. So we decided to spin off a new podcast now in its almost first year of completion where each week we interview a different business leader from the C-suite, not always the CEO, but sometimes the CTO or CIO. We talk about their career, their journey, their setbacks, their fears, their passions, their joys, and they usually give also some great career advice on how to make sure you're living in alignment with your passions, your skills, your values, your dreams, and often there's an interesting pivot that comes about along the way. And today, we have a very similar story. Our guest is Deb Liu. She is the CEO of Ancestry.com. I'm guessing as a civil engineer educated out of Duke and then Stanford Business School, that was a surprise to her parents, but we'll talk about it today on the podcast. Deb, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, you're joining us from California, where I'm guessing Ancestry is headquartered. You have a large presence here in Utah, where Franklin Covey is based. Deb, I know you've got a remarkable journey. You have an undergraduate civil engineering degree from Duke, and I'm guessing an MBA from Stanford. Uh, would you walk us through a little bit of your professional history? You had some amazing jobs in some household name companies. Talk a bit about your career journey, your education journey, and how all of that led, maybe either deliberately or serendipitously, to your role as the CEO of Ancestry.com. You know, if you had told me in college that I would one day be the CEO of Ancestry, I would have not believed you at all. In fact, I would have thought, what are you, what are you talking about? But, you know, what's really interesting is, by the way, Ancestry is a company and was a company at the time I was in college. And so it would have been such an interesting journey. I actually ended up after, um, after undergrad, I actually went to um, consulting and it was a really great adventure. Ended up at Stanford for business school. And then I stumbled upon a small tech company called PayPal. The 300 employees at the time in Mountain View. And I just kind of went into tech and the rest is history. So they say, so I spent a few years running the um, PayPal eBay integration and then eventually went to eBay to run the buyer experience and then landed at another startup with 900 people called Facebook, which is now obviously a much larger company with so many amazing um, brands underneath it as Meta. And so, you know, during that time, I worked in industries like games, payments. Um, I built Facebook Marketplace, Facebook Pay, and a number of different products that um, are still existing today. And when I got the call a couple of years ago about roles to be CEO of Ancestry, I just felt like it was coming home. It's an amazing company. Just uh, really, family is so important to me. And so I had to say yes. Deb, your career is nothing less than remarkable. I mean, you rattle these names off as if they're just another, you know, something. But I mean, this is a remarkable career you've had, early tech in California, and now what is a household name, Ancestry.com. We'll talk about that. But there's a whole other side to you beyond your profession. If I'm not mistaken, you are married, you're a wife, you have three young children. You've just released a new book that's done very well and other things. Talk a bit about the non-work style part of your life as well. 
Well, beyond work, I think what we do every day is, you know, what are the things that are impactful in the world? And, you know, the time that you spend with your family, like that is precious because no one can replace you. So my husband has been incredibly supportive. And then I have three kids, um, you know, a couple of teens and, and a younger child. And it's been quite the adventure. And then recently, last month, actually, my book came out. I wrote that book because I wish I had that book when I started out you know, really kind of seeing what's behind the scenes of having a career and especially a male-dominated field and how the mistakes I made and the lessons from incredible women I had a chance to interview. Deb, you've also talked, I think, about this idea that often women are what you call the shock absorbers of society. I may have misquoted you, but directionally it's accurate. Talk about what that means and maybe what is the role of the C-suite in a company to recognize a unique role that women professionals have that maybe not all men can either relate to or could better be more empathetic to or support of, especially those in the C-suite. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big challenges, and by the way, I heard that shock absorber actually on the radio and I thought that is exactly how I feel. The women mothers are the shock absorbers when you know they send all the kids home who takes care of them. When there's a caregiver needed for an elderly relative, who's the person who takes on the doctor's appointments? So much of life is really kind of supporting the schools, supporting communities. And a lot of that is actually done by the mothers and the women in our society. And yet at the same time, we don't acknowledge it. Recently wrote an article about what they don't tell you about maternity leave. And it really took off because so many people see exactly what happened to me during the six years between when I was pregnant and I had my last child, I didn't, I not only didn't get promoted, I actually took a demotion to go to Facebook. And so for six years, my career completely stalled. And yet, you know, you think about that, that, you know, I had so much catching up to do. And so many women came out of the woodwork and said, you know, same thing happened to me. When I went on leave, when I was pregnant, I lost so much ground in my career. And yet we don't acknowledge it. We don't talk about this. And I think that it's important that we actually open up and talk about some of these challenges that women face in particular in our society and in our workplaces, because we stand to lose a lot of talent. These women actually drop out, something I actually considered several times during those six years. Uh, Deb, take that a step further. I think it's pretty common knowledge now that uh, st- st- the statistics say that women are going to be dramatically more disproportionately impacted from COVID, right? From the millions of working professional women who had no choice other than to recuse themselves from work to take care of their family. And I've heard that's been set back, you know, perhaps women in leadership by decades and decades in the C-suite. The C-suite diversity is changing. It's improving, not fast enough to some people's preference. What responsibility or what call to action would you say to those who are in the C-suite and they're listening to this podcast today with you as their peer? What would you like for the perhaps Caucasian men, the white men that are in the C-suite, what would you like them to know about what role they can play in accelerating women's role in the C-suite, that of uh, diversity as well? What would you like us to know? You know, as somebody who made it, but somebody who also considered dropping out of the workforce a couple times, I have to tell you that it felt like I was alone. I felt like when I came back from leave, I didn't have an ally. I felt like there wasn't an opportunity. There wasn't balance for me. I was breastfeeding and nursing and I was taking care of toddlers and it was just, it was overwhelming. And I felt like going to work every day was yet another thing that I was failing at. And I hear this a lot from a lot of women, you know, I'm failing at home at work. If I just leave work, at least I could do one thing. Right. And I spent many years convincing women not to do that and not to drop out. And if they did to come back, but 
I think as somebody who is here this week today, and, and I would advise everybody, you stand to lose such incredible talent if you're not nurturing them, caring for them, and really spending the time investing in them. And yet, at the same time, we just you know pretend that these things don't happen. That these you know there's no physical you know difficulty in pregnancy. That you know leaving for four to six months is not a huge burden financially and personally for people. And then coming back and actually continuing to nurse or care for a newborn or caring for a parent. I think all of those things we just we just say, well, that's home. This is work. And therefore, let's focus on work. And yet at the same time, you know, work and home are yin and yang. If one of them overtakes the other, yeah. it actually engulfs it, actually shrinks what's possible. What, what drew you to the culture of ancestry? Obviously, you had a remarkable career happening before ancestry, very different organization. What was the draw, the magnet that made you want to become the CEO of Ancestry.com? The thing that drew me was it's a very family-oriented company. It cares about families. It's about family. And so it's not just that we talk about family and, you know, finding your family story and history and documenting your family experience, but it also is a family-oriented company. It cares about families. It's something which I loved. And that kind of balance and that kind of culture was really important to me as I was looking for something different. And, you know, I loved my time in, in hard driving tech companies, but at the same time, Ancestry is what it lives. It's its product as well. And that's what really drew me to here. So bring it down from like 30,000 feet to 10 feet. What does someone do when they hire Ancestry? When they log in, what is your mission? How do you help people accomplish what? What really happens at Ancestry.com? When you come to Ancestry and you log in, you really start kind of looking back at your family history. So you, you start your family tree. You start with yourself, your parents, your grandparents. And then as it unfolds, we actually have you know, 30, 30 billion records that actually help you uncover maybe parts of your family you didn't know anything about. For example, if your family was in the 1950 census, or 1940 census, it can actually automatically help you build your family tree and actually go backwards in time. And you can actually see your family unfold. And so, you know, what's really incredible about it is using technology to discover your family history, not just a piece of paper and you have to document it, you know, to build your family, but really using the records of all over the world to help you find ship manifests when your parents came to America or your grandparents or your great-grandparents and stories about them in newspapers.com and so much of the kind of, you know, history that you didn't know that's out there somewhere for you. Tell me, we hear these stories, Deb, of people having these life-changing discoveries when they get on ancestry or perhaps even investigative detective work helping to solve crimes. How has the user experience change the way you all focus on your R&D investments, how you market, how you design uh, options. Are you, do you tend to be ahead of the consumer leading them? Are you listening and watching and they're leading you? I'm guessing the law enforcement agencies use your resource as well. Talk a bit about the ways that symbiosis works. Yeah, so first on the law enforcement point, privacy is incredibly important to us. And we don't you know, share data with law enforcement unless there's a valid kind of uh, court order or something like that. And we have a very strict policy around that. But you know what, the way that we build product is that it's really the push-pull. We have new ideas, you know, we bring things to market like DNA earlier than customers would say, okay, I'm looking for a DNA test to find out more about my family history. But at the same time, we also get a lot of push from our customers to say, hey, you know, could you give us this? The one thing that's been really incredible is we we recently launched uh, Side View, where you can actually see which side of your family, your mother or your father, where you can where you you actually uh, inherited your ethnicity from. 
which is really incredible and something that only our company can do. And so, you know, this is something that perhaps was not on the radar of a lot of people, but now you can actually see, I, you know, if your parents have passed away, for example, haven't done a DNA test before that, you could never figure out, well, you know, I'm 40%, you know, X, well, where did it come from? And instead, actually, you're able to look backwards in time and actually see your parents' ethnicity as well. That's remarkable. I mean, truly remarkable. Uh, let's talk a bit about introverts and extroverts. A friend of mine, Susan Cain, wrote a seminal book in the last decade called Quiet. She actually was our second interview on our series four years ago. Phenomenal book. I loved the book as a raging extrovert. It was a Bible in terms of my leadership style, because not everybody likes my style, and I judge introverts differently than I judge extroverts. And you are sort of a self-described introvert, and you talk as a civil engineer. I love how you talk about how you had to sort of discipline yourself to learn how to make extroversion work for you, especially when you went to Stanford. Talk a little bit about your journey as an introvert and sort of uh, how you've been able to live in an extroverted world and lead in one and without losing who you are. And, and talk about that. Give voice right now to all of the introverts and extroverts that are listening. Some are both certain times of the day. Take that wherever you want to go. I'd love to listen just to kind of what your journey has been and give voice to both sides. Well, I love Susan's book. It just finished it. And I had read it, actually parts of it with my son, who was extremely introverted as well. And, you know, I just finished the whole thing. And and, and I just, I love that it spoke to everything that I am and, and how I grew up and, and you know, the, the challenges of being an introvert. I have always been introverted. I was extremely shy and introverted. So she talks about the difference between the two. And I just felt like, you know, one thing I learned in the workplace is there's an enormous bias towards being able to speak and, and kind of, you know, speak and, and articulate your point of view, you know, on a dime. And I remember kind of coaching somebody on my team and she said to me, I said, you know, you should speak up more meetings. And she said, well, I'm a processor. And by the time I process and have a thought, the conversation has been done. And people judge her very harshly for that. And they would say, well, you know, she's not that good at her job. And I said, 5% of your job is actually articulating what you do. 95% is actually doing it. And the problem was that she struggled with that because she was an introvert, she needed more time. And I feel like our workplaces are built, especially now even, where we're on Zooms all day, you know, are built for people who are extroverted, able to articulate any idea really quickly. And, you know, I struggled with that for so many years. And when I got to business school, it was great in engineering school. You do problem sets, it works. And then you go to business school and suddenly, you know, 30 to 50% of your grade is class participation. And I realized I had to build it, a, skill, a new skill set. And that's what I did. I actually taught myself to be an extrovert. It is very hard. It's still draining to do, to mimic an extrovert all day. But at the same time, I realized that that was what was necessary to be both successful in business school and in the workplace. And so I treat, you know, a lot, I hear a lot of people say, but I'm an introvert. And I said, yes, but that's not the end of the sentence. The end of the sentence is, I'm an introvert, but I want to connect with others. Or I'm an introvert, but I want to learn how to speak up. Because I think that that is a skill that we underestimate how important it is. And it actually is a penalty, an unfair penalty for those who aren't born extroverts. Deb, you said something profound there. You used the term where you taught yourself how to be an extrovert, how to mimic extroverts. I'm guessing... You know, from a, from a label point of view, you would identify more as being an introvert than an extrovert. You've determined through your own experience that extroversion was a valuable trait, skill to have in the workplace. How do you balance the fact of who you really are as a mom and as a spouse, 
as an introvert, giving your kids their identity, their authentic identity, having them choose their own, with recognizing that undeniably, people who can process quickly and, and express themselves verbally is no doubt a competency. I was interviewing the former CEO of Nintendo last week, and I asked him what was the one skill he saw the biggest deficiency in with kids coming out of college into the workplace, and he said, hands down, communication skills. Kind of ironic, the former CEO of Nintendo, we talked about that and such. Um, but he said, as that is true, is the ability to you know, reduce your thoughts into words and writing and be able to speak in the moment. How do, you, how do you find your own sort of authentic balance between who you really are and kind of sometimes who you need to be? I love that question. I actually treat extroversion the way that I treat speaking a second language. That, you know, if I had to function in a second language to be successful in the workplace, say you had to learn Spanish because you were going to go head up a Latin, you know, team, you would go do it and you would figure it out. It would not necessarily mean you're dreaming in, you know, Spanish, but at the yeah. same time, it's really important that you're adapting, you're actually growing. And, you know, it doesn't mean that it's any less authentic when you're speaking Spanish. And so I think it's the same thing. It's not that I'm less authentic in my, my own self. It's that it is a skill that I learned and it's a skill that I employ to actually deliver what I really want to accomplish. Uh, Deb, get vulnerable for a moment. I don't know about you, but as a C-suite leader, which I was for a decade in Franklin Covey, public global company, there's no question I found myself favoring people like me. Not just, hopefully, age or race or, or gender, but people who had my personality. I like strong-willed, well-spoken, high-energy, fast-paced people. I don't dislike people not like that, but I gravitate towards those who feed my energy. And like you, I had an experience once with a colleague from Minnesota, very competent person, happened to be a female, that's immaterial, at every meeting, she was very quiet in meetings, super quiet, took copious notes, but never said much of a word. I kind of found her disengaging, disengaged. But inevitably, it was the same person the day or two after the meeting would call me up and say, you know, at 1035 on Tuesday, as you were talking about this topic, you said this and this, and I want to learn, I mean, like, I said what on what day? And the rest of the sycophants were all talking and gaining my favor, but it was the introverts that often were the most in touch and focused. What advice would you give someone like me that is human and has biases, unconscious or otherwise, to make sure that we're giving equal voice and platform to those that aren't just like us? Because it's a real issue. Yeah, one of the things I did was I wrote an article recently about how, you know, how we can deal with this kind of secret bias no one talks about. And one of the things was for leaders, how do you change the process to open the door so you can hear all voices? Because think about half the people in the group, maybe, for, I think Susan Cain says maybe 40% of people are natural introverts or something like that. You're losing the voice of 40% of people like that colleague of yours who had insightful and important things to say and yet, you know, seemed disengaged to you. And so instead, the, what I said is we can change the process to be more inclusive of everybody. People who feel uncomfortable speaking, people who speak English as a second, second language, people who just need more time to process. You know, all of those things are, we're losing out on those people because of the way we have these popcorn conversations where it's like the loudest, the fastest, the most willing to put themselves out there. And so the way I would actually suggest to change the process is, you know, one thing we do is we send out pre-reads. So everyone has time to process. If you choose to want to process, you have time and you send it out 24 hours at least before the meeting. 
The second thing is to really like say, hey, let's go around the room and tell everyone in advance, we're gonna go around the room and do X. Another thing we do is voting on our team. We actually enter our votes in a spreadsheet ahead of time so that everyone's vote and their comments are in so that no one is caught off guard. These are just small adjustments and adaptations to allow us to really connect with those who need more time. And I think that in that way, you can open up the conversation to so many more people. Deb, you mentioned things like pre-voting, pre-reads. Are these systems and processes and now cultural imperatives that you brought to Ancestry because of your own introversion? Was it already there? Talk about how you've and your team have chosen deliberately to put those things in place so that the 40% of the voice is heard and valued. And that's something I, you know, I brought that from my last leadership team because we also had a lot of introverts there and the last uh, Facebook app commerce team. But when I came to Ancestry, I found that, you know, similar to a lot of teams, it was just kind of the style of the meeting was whoever was running the meeting. Yeah. And I just said, hey, look, like for our leadership team and for teams, I would encourage you to actually send out pre-reads. So we send out pre-reads long ahead of time for board meetings as well as all of our meetings. And then, you know, the the voting, the, the surveys, the going around the room, that is also really, really important. And I think that we each, you know, these sort of adjustments and, and bias interrupters actually create so much more value. And I've seen that. I've seen a lot of the people who were not heard at the very beginning really kind of being heard now in a lot of the conversations we have at Ancestry. I'm so glad you shared this because although I'm no longer in the C-suite to some's delight, I, I recognize that much of my style, Deb, for a decade was, well, I have an agenda and I want to get this passed and done, so I'm going to speak first and loud and persuasive and charismatic, and I won't give the time for those introverts to think it through because I wanted to get something done. I had an agenda, right? Or perhaps it was illegitimate. It was a, a deadline or a quarterly campaign, and I look back now and think how misguided that was and how even self-serving at times. not unethical or immoral. It's just I had an agenda, and oftentimes when... I would be encouraged to pull back a little bit. So much better thought came out and so much better wisdom. And we would end on a very different topic that maybe wasn't validating my strategy, but was in fact, I had to acknowledge the best thing for the company. I think I railroaded that past too many people too fast because of my extroversion. I'm a better parent now and leader because of that. I want to talk about your book as well, too. I love the title, Take Back Your Power. Recent released. My encouragement to have you talk a little more about that. Who should read that book? Who is it benefiting? Talk a little bit about the value of your recent book, Take Back Your Power. Yeah, I mean, I wrote that book because, you know, for so many people, especially women, they feel like the system wasn't built for them, right? There's a lot of, you know, I talk about the statistics. Like, for example, you know, women just represent a lower, you know, group, a lesser, you know, percent of boards at C-suite, as, as you know. But also, you know, women uh, face different you know, areas of bias. Like one example is men are seen as leaders if they're competent. Women have to be competent and warm. And just like introversion or extroversion, it's something that, you're either innately warm or not. I was not innately warm, honestly. So I was very introverted and also not warm. And I had a lot to work on. And, you know, I think that the system isn't built for us if you if you look at that. But at the same time, we have so much more power than we think. And so the book is really just acknowledge and say, look, I see you and I hear you. And the stats actually do validate that there are more challenges for women. And that said, what do we do about it? We can't, we don't have a magic wand. We can't just, you know, fix the system tomorrow. And we have to live within the system in the meantime. And therefore, here's what we do in the meantime. And so the first chapter I say is meant to depress you. The next nine chapters are tips to take back your power in different circumstances. 
Well, Debbie, you seem warm to me. Or maybe you're just doing a really good job of mimicking warm people. Mimicking, I'm mimicking. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, you seem, it you make it, right? You seem warm to me. Okay, let's talk a bit about your career. I want you to think of a couple of things you did really well along your journey that aren't unique to you, that, you know, I can't be a chemical or a, a civil engineer. My brother is a chemical engineer. I'm never going to become one, so I can't replicate your thought process. But are there some things you did deliberately or learned to do that everybody else could emulate, that people could also adopt, that helped to build this amazing career that you've built, and you're you know, clearly not even close to the pinnacle of your career yet. Talk about some of the wise things you did that other people listening to you can say, you know what, that's something I could do also. I'm going to adopt that into my career. Well, I would say two things. One is I have a no regrets policy. I started it when my son was born because I feel like there's a lot of mom guilt and all of these groups are all about mom. You go to mom groups and there's a lot of guilt. And I said, look, I'm not going to do that. Instead, if I didn't feel like I spent enough time with him the first week or, you know, a couple weeks, I would didn't spend more time with him. It's all about the future. Look forward, not backward. And that has helped me release so many things because a lot of times we just, we look at our stumbling blocks and we just stand in front of the stumbling block instead of saying, look, let's use this as a stepping stone to the next thing. And so that's the no regrets policy has served Amen. me really well. It doesn't mean you don't need to be reflective. It just means you take that moment, you mourn it, and then you move on. The second one is really a learning mindset. You know, I have terrible imposter syndrome. I have walked into events. I walked into a CEO summit with 200 people and I was the only woman of color there. It's less than 10% women. And I had to say, you know what? I belong here because if I'm here, then the next person, next person, next person will continue and, and grow from there. And so, you know, I had to kind of say, you know what? The learning mindset is such that I'm going to be the best I can be today and I'm going to continue to learn and grow as fast as I can. And so instead of actually figuring, saying I'm an imposter, I say, I'm an explorer, I'm a learner. And that's really helped me reframe and grow in a way that I could have gotten stuck in many places. Something I think all of us can relate to both sides of that. Uh, Deb, take it to the flip side. Are there a couple of mistakes you made that, and be as vulnerable as you're willing to be, to say, you know, here's a decision I made or a mistake that I made, how I treated someone, my ambition, that as I look back now, I would encourage others to avoid that metaphorical pothole. You know, I wish I could say that I was always, you know, somebody who wasn't learning mindset, but for a long time, I just said, you know what, I wish that, you know, I would wish for things, I would push really hard. I was, you know, one thing I'd gotten feedback on was I was really aggressive. So, you know, I'm introverted and aggressive and not warm. And so one of the things was because I would fight for my ideas to the exclusion. And I realized that there were times I wasn't listening because I was so sure of my, my answer was the right answer that I would fight for it. I would do whatever it takes. And realized, I realized at some point that that really hurt my relationships. And I had to take a step back and say, you know what? You know, I need to get rid of that chip on my shoulder. And Sheryl Sandberg, actually, there's an article about this. You know, she said, you can stop fighting now you want. And part of that was I had this chip on my shoulder. Mm. I just was so focused on the goal. And it was eyes on the prize to the exclusion of everything else. So I had to take a step back and I had to redial. And it was, you know, it was really hard. It was a hard reset for me. And I wish I could say that overnight I solved that problem. But instead, it was a journey, a journey to readjust my, my, the way that I approach things, the way I, you know, the way I communicated as well. 
Great advice. You can stop fighting now. You've won. I think it's a great metaphor and advice. Deb, thank you so much for joining us today. CEO of Ancestry.com. You've given me some great motivation just to log in. I've actually been on the site, but I haven't actually become a member. I think it'd be a fun exercise for our three boys. My wife and I have three sons that are 8, 10, and 12, and both of our fathers have just recently passed in the last two months. And so we're really more interested in kind of our family's journeys and such. So thank you for your time today. Thanks for joining us. And Glad we talked about your book, Take Back Your Own Power, as well. Thanks, Deb, for joining us. Thank you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.